welcome to the Joy Factory Monthly, the very first edition ever. Woo! 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 I'm Sean, and I have a very special guest for this inaugural edition of this walkie weirdo idea that I decided to come up with, and that person is Paul Weimer. Hi, Paul. Hello, friends. Hello, Sean. So if folks don't know who Paul is, tell us, <laughs> who is the real Paul? I think we recently <laughs> discovered, as Camestros Phillips can point out, I'm one of the centers of science fiction fandom on Twitter, unexpectedly. And and oddly enough, have had a very joyful reminder recently that people do, in fact, care about you. And actually, an absurd number of people not only know who you are, but desperately want to burn all of Twitter to the ground <laughs> if they try to take away your account again. Uh, it's it's gobsmacking. I I mean, it's like the whole no one knows me, no one loves me, no one knows if I, if I fell off the earth. This has been just conclusively disproven. I told you. I keep telling you, Paul. And now, now you can't deny it because you'd have to live in a la la land. <laughs> I have to live in this weird land where hundreds, maybe thousands of people on science fiction Twitter know who I am. Not just them, you know, the the people that maybe don't have very popular accounts, but even folks like NYT best-selling author, multiple Hugo Award winner N.K. Jemison also was tweeting about this. So, <laughs> to be to to be fair, I've been friends with Nora for a while. I mean, I show up on her Twitch channel when she streams things. So Nora is very good people. Oh, oh yeah, because how many people could say, oh yeah, I'm 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 on good terms with N.K. Jemison. No big deal, Paul. <laughs> Okay, well, so the way that this show will work, it's the very first episode, so literally nobody knows what's going on other than Paul and I, at least for this episode. And honestly, I don't even know what's going on in this, because this is the first time I'm doing this, and I'm going to honestly wing it and figure out how I really want these shows to work. The idea here is that the Joy Factory Project is exactly what it sounds like. It's a factory of joy. In this case, geeky joy, because that's the thing that obviously interests me, science fiction, fantasy, horror, geeky related things, fun science, you know, just stuff that most people would get labeled as a giant nerd for in a 1980s gym and then get promptly shoved into a locker. And that's the kind of thing that I'm hoping for here. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about three really interesting pieces of news from the last week of genre fiction, genre media news. Uh, one of these has been selected by Paul, and then two of them were just things that, one, it seems very obvious that Paul and I would be interested in, and then one that was just a fun and also slightly horrifying science fact. And so that's the way this will work, and we'll talk about these together, and I'm going to kind of do the same thing and figure this out as I go along. So with that in mind, Paul, I think we should talk about the very first super media, super geeky piece of information, which is the fact that Babylon 5 not only is on HBO Max and other streaming services, but also has been remastered for those services, which is an impressive feat, given this is a very early, heavy CG-using science fiction show, <laughs> and it has been remastered for your use on a streaming service, which may or may not affect people outside the U.S. You'll have to check on your own, but uh, on our end, we do get an HBO Max, and I have that, and so I know all about the fact that Babylon 5 is there. And Paul, please explain to our listeners why this is exciting. 
Why is this exciting? It's exciting personally for me because Babylon 5 is one of the central science fiction shows of my canon. But back in the 90s, Babylon 5 pioneered. It came out about for listeners about the same time as Deep Space Nine did for the, the Star Trek series. But it pioneered a lot of the long form threads and storytelling that is now the default in the TV series. Before Babylon 5, TV's science fiction TV shows were almost entirely episodic. One done in the can. Long arcs were very, very rare. I mean, I, some shows did kind of string things along. Blake 7 comes to mind. Um, once One whole season of uh, Doctor Who comes to mind, the key to time. But generally, you had an episode, you watched it, and you were done, and there was not a lot of things to string along. Babylon 5 decided, we're going to tell a story over five seasons. We're going to have standalone episodes. We're going to have episodes that refer to each other. We're going to tell this long, complex epic. And for the most part, they made it work. And now what Babylon 5 pioneered with that sort of character focus, long, epic drama is now kind of when you when you go watch Game of Thrones or any new TV series coming out, that's what you expect. Babylon 5 started forming the mold to make this happen. And it's also... An original property, I mean, it's not Star Trek, it's not Star Wars. They decided to build their own universe, and it's a universe that persists in my mind to this day as complex, interesting, multipolar, and endlessly engaging. And for years, the reason why I was excited that we have this remastered edition, for years, the only way you really could get Babylon 5 was a set of DVDs, which frankly, or a average quality and for the longest time the show's producer j michael straczynski said that yeah we we're not going to ever remake this we're not going to remaster this this is what you got surprise we have a now a remastered version on streaming services yeah it's interesting that we've we've got that it's also worth noting there is something sad uh, right now which is that mira furlan who played just passed away yes just passed away almost exactly when this this hit the news like pretty close And that's obviously really sad. Babylon 5 fans have kind of, I think, come to terms with the fact that pretty much everybody from that show, with a couple of exceptions, will pass and has Uh, Or have. I mean, it's been been shocking how many cast members of the show have passed away in the years since the show. I mean, outsized of, way out of proportion to their age and... Yeah. And and, and their... And what you would expect. Babylon 5 is also noteworthy in that while it's very mostly a white cast, but back in the 90s it was noted as having very much lesser actors and a lot of European actors that you probably never had seen before on television until season two where you get Bruce Boxleitner in on the show. You didn't really recognize any of the actors. I mean, Bruce Boxleitner, you know, from other genre stuff. I mean, it's just like Tron. <laughs> Tron, Tron, Tron and the Scarecrow, and Mrs. King. So yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting uh, because Mira Furlan, her history because she came from the a former country of Yugoslavia. There was an article that was actually about how how she came to the U.S. and started her career here, and it was largely because of the eventual dissolution of that country that she like got not just blackballed, but like she had to basically flee her home country yeah. to come to the U S and it's a thing that, you know, maybe deep in the weeds, Babylon five people might've known. Most people didn't know this. And it's primarily because she didn't talk about it very much. 
And it's been really interesting to watch that history come back. Uh, and it's also really interesting to think about because, you know, I, I imagine a lot of Babylon, like real deep Babylon 5 people probably went digging through some of the, the actors' histories and, you know, tried to look at interesting p political parallels with some of the, the show because the Babylon 5 me having not finished it, so I don't know all of the things that go into the show, but it does have some deep political messaging, and there's a lot of interesting uh, connections you can draw to, you know, 80s and 1990s, mostly European politics and, and American politics, but those things do exist. There's a lot of allegorical material there, so there's just, I think it's really interesting that a lot of times, you know, the kind of story that we get after the passing of somebody, which is very sad... But normally, like, the story is something to the effect of, like, here's all the stuff that they were in, and they were in lots of things, have a nice day, they're, you know, they have family that was left, which is fine. But there's also been this interesting element, I think, for Mira Furlan, which is, you know, really thinking about, like, what was her place in the world in terms of, you know, the, the sort of political machinations that led to her becoming somebody that American audiences knew, Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a lot there that is super interesting and also just makes for this very rich history, in some cases, sad history. Yeah, so there's just a lot to kind of talk about there. And I think it's also really great that Babylon 5, while there, it had been on Amazon Prime, I don't know if it's still there. It was like it was like the DVD transfers. And now we're getting a much more high definition version so that people can appreciate it without it seeming like they're watching on a on a you know, an old tube TV, which some people may still remember. Uh, you and me both, Paul, remember tube <laughs> TVs, because uh, I used to have them. I, I, actually, side note, funny enough, growing up, the first ten, eight years of my life, we, we still had a black and white television. Remember, Sean, my family wasn't the richest family on the block. So until about age eight, everything was in black and white in my family. Well, that's another element here that's, I think, interesting, which is because of the almost almost takeover of streaming services for how people consume their tv media uh you know shows like this now are just incredibly more accessible or potentially more accessible than they might ever have been you know prior i mean i i, I both of us paul right if you if you wanted to rewatch a show you either had to hope that it was syndicated in some capacity or you had a vhs recorder and you recorded it uh, otherwise, you waited for it to either come out on on some form of home media, and I, Paul, I suspect you precede even that because you're a little bit older than me. Yes, yes, I I, I precede even that. Well, the take the prisoner, the mm -hmm. TV show, the prisoner. They broadcast a marathon of that in the late '80s in New York. I recorded all 17 episodes. They did it over a week, a long That's awesome. weekend, and so I watched those tapes for years till the tapes fell apart. Because I couldn't watch it, rewatch it any other way. That's how people watch the Star Wars holiday special. So <laughs> it's all just yeah. VHS recordings. <laughs> and it, it, eventually, I had no tapes and then nothing, and I had to wait years till a U.S. home release of the Prisoner showed yeah. up on DVD. Because I mean, I could. I mean, there was UK versions, but you could play. I could get for expensive money shipped overseas that wouldn't even work on my DHS. So yeah, I remember the days. I mean, there's a part of this, too, where it's like, you know, some stuff doesn't get preserved because it's considered not very good. 
But I, I don't feel like something not being good is a good enough reason not to make it accessible if we have the technology to do it. I mean, other than the resources to actually make it accessible. There's a winnowing effect. There's a winnowing effect here. It's like things get lost and only certain things survive. No, is even necessarily the best. It just, it's, 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 it's weird in this modern age where you think we could save everything. We, we're still limited in some ways. The ways we 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 don't have every single play of the Elizabethan era, and we have hardly any of all the Greek plays that got produced during the golden age of Athenian civilization. And yeah, we we have this lot. There's lots of holes, and we have holes here today. And we think like, well, we have all these ways to preserve stuff, and yet things fall through our fingers and are lost. So the only way we're going to keep these things is if. They're in media that can continually be updated and refurbished and go forward. So having these on the streaming services make it more likely they'll be available for generations down the road rather than just moldering in a freezer. And nobody ever touches it until they're gone and forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I just don't want. I don't want that. So no, no, I don't want that because th there's valuable there's valuable things like Babylon 5 out there that I want new audiences to see and appreciate and bring forward. So having it available for a new audience and a new generation fills me with wonder and joy. Well, speaking of that, Paul, that actually is a great way to segue into uh, your topic because it I does. think it does, in fact, have something to do with this idea of, you know, preserving and making accessible something for very, very new generations. <laughs> yes. So... Recently, the Egyptian Ministry of Tourism and Anti Antiquities announced that they found 52 new burial shafts containing like 50 wooden coffins that are up to 3,000 years old in the city of the dead of Saqqara. Mummies, not just regular mummies, all sorts of things they found in these things. They found copies of the Book of the Dead, which is basically the... Egyptian handbook on how to get to the afterlife and live in it happily. I mean, it was like the essential reading. You want to have a happy afterlife, you follow what you do in the Book of the Dead. So they found like a 13-foot-long, 3-foot-wide papyrus scroll with an expert from the book. Because the book the book is gigantic. It makes Kate Elliott's book seem small by comparison. But here's the, now here's the funniest thing. The thing that really gets me and really want to put, put into this... Uh, context of why this is exciting not only because of all the interesting things they found there they found a mummified lion in here for crying out loud which is just weird in of all itself it's in addition to all the other mummies it's the new information about when and how egyptians treated their dead and and where they bury them that's interesting because we thought we knew when the egyptians were burying the dead in saqqara but this kind of blows that out of the water. We thought it was like about uh, New Kingdom, 16th to 11th century BC. But now we know that, no, they were burying, burying dead in this region for far longer than anybody ever expected. So we have mummies and finds from a, a wider range of time of Egyptian history. And Egyptian history is long. Let me put it this to you this way, because I love to put it this way. Cleopatra is closer to us in history, than she is to the building of the pyramids. That's how old Egypt is. Egyptian history is long. It is And it's very not long. one static thing. It's got all sorts of trends 
and developments. It's it's incredibly rich. Growing up, I kind of fell into the class the three classic ancient civilizations love Greece, Rome, and Egypt. Everyone knows who's known me for five minutes how much I love Rome. But Egypt and Greece also got my love because of their their ancientness and the depth of what we learned and knew about them. And I still would, if the world would be less of a trash fire, go and see the pyramids. Because well, they're so old, we have records of a Roman emperor going to see the pyramids. Yeah. Because he decided to tour his empire. I would like to stand where he did. It's like a guy 2,000 years ago stood and looked at pyramids that were so old that he's closer to us in history than, we, than he was to them. I'd like to do that. And so finding, finding this gigantic hall of new shafts in Sakaar is just like more material, more information. We have new, new and better technologies to study these mummies and these documents and to piece them together so we can learn even more about a civilization that lasted for thousands of years. I mean, how old is the United States? 200 some odd years? We're a yeah, baby yeah. compared to, I mean, that's, that's a single dynasty in Egypt. Right. So there's just so much there to learn and understand about these people and how they lived and what they did and what they believed and the, their, daily, their daily lives. In some cases, we're also getting, you know, new names of people that we didn't even know existed. So there's a thing in the, the Business Insider link, which we'll, we'll have on the, the post for this, which talks about uh, this same place that they found the burial of one of Tetis or Titis or Tet... Uh, it's Teti, T-E-T-I, but uh, they found a burial which looked to be one of his wives, but there were no names on it. And they, they kept digging around and eventually found that her name was Queen Nirit. And, and no one had ever heard this name before. It's like... Bam! Who is this woman? And apparently, you know, she ruled at some point, some, you know, I don't know, 4,200 years ago, you know, and and I think it's a thing that's really important that Paul, on the one hand, there's all this wonder, right, about Egypt, because we do know quite a lot. There's also a monumental that we don't know. And so every find where they dig up something that we didn't know is like almost like like discovering a gold mine. And so in this one, I think this article ends on them talking about, I think it was either sandstone or limestone sarcophagi, which like, I guess they they had just found it's like, Oh, we got more. Right. And it's, it's, I think what's fascinating about this is that, you know, when we're talking about like more contemporary time, you know, we can, the new discoveries can end up being like really tiny little details that like nuance something. But in, something so ancient as this like when we find a new find it's it's not some like minor thing like oh we found like you know king tut's like you know like one of his his nail clippers and i guess he like he was left-handed or whatever you know it's like (laughs) monumental stuff like no 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 we found like king tut's entire library you know or or a new queen or we found that they buried people in ways we didn't even know or in this case we found that they were burying people and also animals we didn't necessarily always know that they mummified, you know, 500-something years before anybody in this location had buried anyone, which totally changes our timeline of Egypt. Exactly. Ancient Egypt's timeline is so controversial and trying to, people trying to piece it together that this, this throws you know, a monkey wrench into that timeline. Like, oh, we there's a lot of stuff we really don't know. What else might be out there? Now that we know that this these shafts are here, it's just like... 
it's fascinating. It's it's super cool. And you know, for folks that are listening who maybe aren't like ancient Egypt buffs, right? Saqqara is, I think Paul had mentioned, it's it's what it's a city of the dead, and so mm-hmm. there are all kinds of necropoli that are are here where where people have been buried, and they've been done digging here for a long time, and they've been finding lots of stuff. And there are a number of pyramids, some of the oldest pyramids. Yeah, the step pyramids here. Yeah, the step yeah, so pyramids. The, the older, of, of small Joser. ones yeah. are here, not the big ones you see in the postcards. Though those are great. Those are those are the classic ones, but smaller pyramids are here. This is where they kind of perfected the form. Yeah. Where they went for the big ones. And it's it's fascinating because, you know, this this is clearly in a really important place in ancient Egypt. It wasn't just a you know, they just moseyed there once in a blue moon, like when they went on vacation, like they were going to Disney World. This was like sacred. It was it was a huge, important place in their culture. And so everything we learn about them, we're learning about their rituals and their behaviors, uh, about what they buried, what they revered. I mean, there's a bit in here that talks about, you mentioned, right, the mummified lions, but like they mummified crocodiles and like all this stuff. And, you know, now we know so much about, like, how they felt about animals, like, that they apparently they they saw animals as sort of, like, reincarnations of gods, and so they sort of revered them. And that's what, part of why they mummified them. And that's wild, because we knew that everybody kind of knows the cat thing, like, they loved cats or whatever. The cat thing, and Sobek, the crocodile-headed god, we, and Anubis, the jackal-headed god, we knew those, but, like... Finding actual mummified creatures, that's new. That's huge. It's a huge thing. I had like lion cubs in here and like crocodiles and all kinds of wild stuff. And there's and there's also like really interesting facts because like I, I think a lot of people think about ancient Egypt as being like, oh, it's just desert. It's just deserts, right? It's just like all deserts and there's like one river with like one tree on it and then Noah shows up or not Noah, uh, Moses shows up and, you know, that there's some locusts and they, they eat everybody's like one pine nut that they have left. And it's like, no, this this is a very elaborate civilization which had a very wide range of different, you know, environments. And you can see that in the the, the tool, the, the materials they used to build you know, there's sarcophagi, there's woods, and all of these beautiful yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of what's left in Egypt these days is stone because you know stuff went away. But they found, I guess it was preserved in this in this tomb, stuff like a wooden obelisk carved with Egyptian gods. Right. I mean, how incredibly rare that to find that still intact. It's, it's so cool. And there's there's an image in here that's of them. Uh, they've been doing public openings of, of sarcophagi. And uh, apparently, recently also did the first ever like live X-ray of a of a mummy, uh, which w- it's just so cool. But when you see the pictures, you know they've dusted them off and everything, and brought them out, and you know some of them are like elaborately ordained and gilded, and there's you know gold like almost filigree. I don't know if it's actually gold, but like paint or something. And they, they, there's gilded, there's gilded stuff that they found. I mean, it's not the solid gold of Tutankhamun, but it's 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 real gold on them, and it's gorgeous. Egyptians didn't dent on that imagine the excitement you know you're you're just out you're out in the effectively like almost the middle of nowhere uh because it's like 30 miles from cairo and like nobody it's not really a city anymore it's like you know old stuff like i'm sure some people live there but it's not it's not cairo and so you're out like out here and you're digging around and then you discover you know a shaft and it goes down 30 feet or whatever and then suddenly there are other shafts and you're looking at like the Egyptologist goldmine of information and like the the pure joy that you must feel when you're going in there. Like the guy who discovered this queen, 
Like that, oh my gosh, this queen we didn't even know existed totally changes our perceptions of the Egyptians and how much queens mattered. Because we think of Egyptians less as the Cleopatras of the world. We think of them as, you know, uh, the, the the male pharaohs. Very patriarchal, yes. Yeah. I mean, our knowledge of Egyptian queens is small but growing. Growing, yeah. But for the longest time, it's like Egyptian queens were like, who? It's, we didn't even have names of most of them. Like, oh yeah, wife of X and Y. It's like, we're learning much more. There was much more nuance and a lot more than we ever imagined. And this is another piece of that puzzle. Yeah. And it, it's interesting too, because it tells us a lot about how Egyptians over the, ancient Egyptians, I should say, over the, the course of their history, how they perceived women pharaohs, you know, because we don't know about, like this one was totally new. We didn't even know well, she wasn't a pharaoh, but she was a, a, a queen. Well, maybe she, she was a king because this was in it. This was during the intermediate period. And there were right. a number of different Egyptian power centers in control at one time. no, overarching pharaoh of everywhere but small kinglet right yeah so so but it's still right you know there have been still piece of egypt who have have we we know about them but we may not know a lot because um who was it that like they the the dynasty that or that the the leadership that followed after basically tried to wipe her existence out that that was hatshepsut yeah yes yes she 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 ruled for a good long time and then her son her successor tried to carve her name off of everything it didn't quite work because there's a whole room in the metropolitan museum of art of statues of just her so yeah you you did real well there guy yeah but thank goodness you know and and i'm glad that we found this find because uh it's just cool. And I'm also, can I just say that while I do love, you know, Egyptian conspiracies about curses and stuff, that this article did not talk about them. Because... No, it, it left, it, it thankfully left that all alone and behind. Yeah, yeah. this is this is not too King Tut uh, uh, conspiracy theory central, thankfully. I mean, those are fun, though. <laughs> They're still pretty fun. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, the weird coincidences over the people who found King Tut's tomb is just very weird, strange coincidences. Yeah. Very true. Or as uh, some people may know it, King Tut. <laughs> now, you, now you earwormed me. You're welcome. Speaking of worms, you have, a, you have an article that involves worms, don't you? <laughs> see, how I, see how I help you out here and segue us in? This is great. So the last thing that we're going to talk about is this article that I, I mostly shared because it is Nightmare Fuel. Until you find out what the name of this creature is, and then you realize it's really not as scary. So the article is a scientific report in Nature uh, about some more information we've discovered about a type of uh, predatory worm that still technically exists today. There are many predatory worms in the seas, but they found a 20 million year old layer of this worm that told us a little bit more about how they caught their prey, the what their burrows looked like, those kinds of things, which is pretty important because this is a worm that has been difficult to really know a lot about because their burrows often aren't discoverable. So we only kind of, it's sort of like for a while, people didn't know about much about giant squid, except like occasionally they showed up on the beach or whatever. And it took a while before someone truly observed them on camera, kind of like one of those things. And so they, this study is uh, off the Northeast of Taiwan. Uh, and it, it mostly is a chronicle of, of what they discovered 
uh, in looking at these these ancient burrows that have sort of been preserved uh, going back to, oh gosh, I, I, the, the, the Miocene. So this worm is the Eunice Aphroditeus, or the Bobbit worm, which is... The Bobbit worm. Is, is not a terribly scary name for a giant ambush predator that's roughly two meters long, which is a pretty big worm. And it's pretty horrifying, but they, they decided to name it the Bobbit Worm. And I just want to note, we now know that they are ambush predators who grabbed their prey and then dragged them into their burrows and then consumed them, almost like a sarlacc, except less passive, <laughs> which is a horrifying idea. I mean, yeah, the, I mean, I mean, they're three meters long and two centimeters in diameter. They're not going to affect hurt a person, but for something of its size, that you're swinging along, swinging along, suddenly this thing grabs you and drags you down to your death? It's like, any fish would be terrified by this thing. I mean, you scale this thing up, you have a D&D monster, man. <laughs> I mean, there was, a, it was amusing when I first saw this story. You know, I, I found it really interesting and really horror few, but then was kind of slightly disappointed because when they said giant ambush predator worm, I thought immediately, like, oh, so like uh, the sea version of the worms from Dune? <laughs> like is, is that what they mean by giant because when you say giant that's what i mean <laughs> which could swallow you know the titanic practically it's still a big worm two meters is really long and if you've ever seen an earthworm an earthworm's like one of this thing's teeth <laughs> like <laughs> yeah I, I i i mean just because worms don't have a real exoskeleton they can't get that huge because you know gravity and structural integrity so this is this is pretty impressive that this worm is able to grow this long and this large. It's wild, and and, and for think of its th- and for things around its size, it's absolutely terrifying. I mean, they have this they they have this picture on this article of the three dimensional model of how these bobbin worms do its business, and this poor this poor little fish going by and and just like catches the fish and drags it in, and it just basically the burrow collapses and it eats it. It's like it's you. I mean, you mentioned sarlacc. It's like sarlacc combined with with a worm from doom it's like the spice doesn't flow but the worm certainly does <laughs> you know a lot a lot of worms are pretty i mean i again i'm not a worm expert so what do i know but most worms that i'm familiar with uh, are are mostly passive from a human perspective even tapeworms you know while they do attach themselves to a host right there reasonably passive they just kind of hang in there and eat all your stuff and reproduce but these worms don't (laughs) they wait for you to come by and drag you down to your horrible death (laughs) yeah these these worms are active they're raptorial they they don't they're not passive they 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 go after what they want and they get it it's really interesting because the more we learn about the ocean the more it's like the worst kinds of nightmares live in it uh even when they're they're not actually harmful in any significant way you know they're they're just like horror creatures that live in the sea and you know it's still a beautiful there's lots of beautiful creatures and even some of the horrifying ones are pretty hilarious anglerfish are funny as hell even though they they look like something out of someone's twisted nightmare it's something like freddy krueger would dream up would be an anglerfish yeah but I have to read. I have to read this a little bit from the article for the listeners, just to, just to just give them the feel of this. Ancient bobbit worms colonized the seafloor, waiting in ambush for a passing meal. 
When prey came close to a worm, it exploded out from its burrow, grabbing and dragging the prey down into the sentiment. Beneath the seafloor, the desperately floundered to escape, leading to further disturbance of the sentiment around the burrow opening. This is the stuff of a horror movie. David Anandale would love this. I, I know David would. He would definitely find this particularly fascinating. But that's like part of what interests me about these these worms because I, I I know I've told you this, Paul, and I've told a lot of other people, but like last year I got really into horror fiction. Uh, when I found out I kind of liked writing it and I was I felt pretty confident that I was reasonably good at it, you know, at least from my perspective. This is like nightmare fuel. It is it is so something David would find fascinating. But also like the sea is a really like it's it's inspired nightmares in human cultures for centuries, you know. It it is a place of wonder and terror and uh, unknowns and the idea that maybe there's something bigger than three meters long living in the sea that's a giant worm that sucks you into the sediment that we just haven't discovered yet. That's a pretty horrifying prospect, <laughs> and and this this thing just gives us just plenty we could pull from for some sort of terrifying story about giant worms living in the bay sucking innocent swimmers into the sea i I mean you could tie this in with cosmic horror i'm not going to use the name of a certain author you could you tie this with cosmic horror and have uh creatures from underneath the sea with these taming using these worms you the possibilities are there it's so cool so much so much to tell cassandra kosh she would love to write this i think I, I absolutely. It's this is so cool. I will note that on on a on a happy less nightmare fueled thing. Uh, there there's a cool YouTube channel which is about a deep sea surveying drone thing uh, attached to a ship called the Nautilus, which shares videos of some of their you know deep sea adventures of the things that they've discovered with their underwater drone, and mm-hmm. they show some really cool, really fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, sperm whales that they they got like a face to face visit with, and looking at uh, like volcanic fissures under the sea and the stuff that lives there. There's this really amazing and also terrifying video of them finding like this underwater like toxic lake. They had these ridges on the side that like collected all this toxicness, and and it's them surveying and looking at all the stuff living outside, but all the things that got stuck inside of it and died. And it's this just this amazing, beautiful and terrifying stuff that lives under the sea. Uh, they also, you know, catch all kinds of like adorable baby squid and all kinds of just fun and, and cute things. And I really recommend people go check out that channel. You could just search for Nautilus on YouTube. It's just really cool stuff. Yeah. Have you seen, by the way, Paul, before we close out the video of the guy uh, who is on a, a kayak or something out out in the ocean, and he stumbles upon a pod of uh, beluga whales, and it's just him doing the his absolute worst human impression of a beluga call, and them calling back have, to him. Yes, yes, it's almost like they're humoring him. They must be humoring him. It's like, <laughs> He's like the stupid sled creature can't speak right. <laughs> Why does he talk like that? He has such a strange accent. <laughs> but it's, uh, to be, I laugh at it so much because it's just him under there going, ooh, <laughs> and them talking back to him. And it's amazing. It's so cool that he's just having this moment with these beluga whales. But yeah, so it brought me a lot of joy. More so than the sea shanty. The sea shanty thing was also cool, but the guy 
speaking very terrible beluga whale (laughs) and being humored by them was way more joyful. Indeed. All right. Well, I think we've done it, Paul. We have brought a sufficient amount of joy for this inaugural edition of the Joy Factory Monthly. So uh, I will let you tell folks where they can find your stuff so that they can check you out. So where can they find you, Paul? Um... You throw a rock on the internet, you can find me. I have a website, princejustin.com. That's with a V, P-R-I-N-C-E-J-V-S-T-N. I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash princejustin with a V. I'm on Twitter, yay, as princejustin with a V. I, I'm on Instagram as princejustin. Um, I'm on everywhere on the internet as princejustin. I mean, <laughs> you, you Google princejustin, you will find all sorts of places where I am. And I talk and share and spread joy and adventure and science fiction and photography and everything else that interests me a lot shutting me up is the trick well awesome well uh thank you so much paul for being here with me for this first edition i really appreciate it i I, i'm glad to share joy i mean it's like we just said you need an article like oh i know the perfect one (laughs) egypt yes ancient egypt so cool ancient egypt well, cool, folks. So if you want to share some of your links, you can share it on the post for this. Uh, otherwise, uh, expect more content at the Joy Factory. Uh, thank you for being here and enjoying this episode. And I will see you the next time I do it. So, bye! See you.